I spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious mergers and acquisition specialists around. And now I've decided to take the leap into buying businesses. The real questions are how will I do it? How much of the behind the scenes can we really show? And how can business owners like you maximize their purchase price and build generational wealth? This show is going to give you the answers. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we buy, sell, or merge healthcare businesses and physical therapy practices. I'm Dave Kittle, and this is The Dave Kittle Show. Welcome back to The Dave Kittle Show. I am Dave Kittle, owner of Concierge Pain Relief, Home Physical Therapy, and the CEO of the Fieldmaker Group. We're currently speaking with practice owners about partnering or acquiring some or all of their practice. And today we're speaking with Ed Motherway. He is a previous C-suite executive, a private equity executive, a board member, sits on many boards, a board advisor, a turnaround expert. We're going to get into all that. Ed, welcome on. Thanks, Dave. I'm glad you had me on. I'm sorry it took a little while for me to get here, but uh, I've looked at several of your podcasts. It's really great stuff. I'm sure there's a broad audience from different directions who can appreciate the content, and I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Absolutely. I appreciate your time. And I know we spoke a little while ago and you had a bunch of different stints with a bunch of different companies. But one thing that I definitely want to focus on today is some of your private equity background with a firm that was looking at several different healthcare practices, including primary care. And in the pre-interview, you were talking about labs and MRIs and pain management. And you know, at least one of the offices of pain management had physical therapy in it. Ultimately, I think from what we we're talking about in the pre-interview, just kind of like helping the listeners here, whether it's they're looking to buy practices or they're looking to sell practices or they're looking to maybe sell some of their practice to a corporate or or some other strategic or maybe even to us, who knows. But hearing some of those stories, obviously anonymously, but hearing why you guys... And I think the number was something like you looked at like 35 practices. And I think maybe you you guys acquired 14 of them. And you can correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, but why you guys ended up pursuing and completing approximately 14 of those deals and those partnerships and why some of the other ones fell through or that you passed on. So those are the types of things I think that we can kind of dive into. And I know that the audience will appreciate that. And again, part of why I love talking about this stuff is a lot of this nuanced uh, like case studies and why you know firms and, and companies bought or partnered with some practices and passed on others. There's not a lot of this out there. Um, there's some case studies. There, there's you know different financing case studies, but there's not a lot of the nuanced conversations. And owners and, and sellers really only get to the point of hearing some of these stories. I believe if they kind of engage a broker or advisor, and then the broker advisor maybe tells them some of the you know industry anecdotes or, or things like that, but I think getting into that will provide a little bit or shed a little bit of light into some of these experiences that you've had. And so that these practice owners can be a little more savvy, a little more experienced when they go to maybe take that step. Sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah. I, um, I'd love to uh, tell a few stories uh, during our conversation here. Got a few scars to show from our time there. But, um, but you know, as we were discussing earlier, you get better and better with each deal. And that certainly was the case with us. The numbers are a little bit different. We looked at somewhere in the uh, low, mid to mid to low twenties, I think, and I think we closed a little under ten. So I, I think the number seven for deals. But there's a variety of reasons. Some capital constraints, simple good practices, but there's others as well that, as we got savvier in the due diligence, we um, we decided not to 
not to fund the deal. But yeah, definitely a lot there. And I think it can be helpful. Great. And all this was with Greenfield Hill Partners, or was this also with some other firm or company? Yeah, no. The um, So the primary care roll-up that, that uh, you wanted to focus on, that was uh, called Family Care Partners. The name of the business has since been changed. And we're based out of South Carolina. So the roll-up was basically across the Carolinas. We bought practices in North Carolina and South Carolina. Our headquarters were up, up near the Charlotte area. But the intent was to build this platform in that geography in a hub and spoke model. So we had all of our own ancillaries and these hubs. And then we bought practices, the spokes around us. And then all of that activity that those spokes would have from an ancillary standpoint was driven internal to our organization. And that primarily was the investment thesis. Got it. And just for anyone that's watching or listening that that doesn't know, can you kind of define a roll-up or a roll-up strategy? Yeah, sure. It's just a a rapid acquisition strategy of whatever the specialty, if you will, particularly in healthcare. So if you're doing an orthopod roll-up, a derm roll-up, certainly a dental roll-up, that's just a rapid acquisition at a certain multiple, and you try to average a certain multiple, and then create enough value so that you can exit at a much higher, a much higher multiple. And preferably, although I think it's, um, it's harder to do is if you can create a significant organic value, you've hit a home run. Every dollar of organic value, if you can exit at 10x, that's 10, you know, that, that's quite a multiple on, on one of those elements. So, but that's, that's essentially what we, what we were doing. Got it. And in your history in regards to like the the multiple spread there, do you or the industry of what you've seen, is it usually like you're trying to, I don't know, uh, double the multiple or is there some spread or number? Like if you're looking to acquire practices back then or even in the last five or 10 years, maybe at like three or four X EBITDA multiple and then you package them up into a portfolio. And if the market dictates that it's, you know, possible and and the market is interested in, in acquiring or buying that, then you're trying to sell it at seven or eight X EBITDA multiples. So it's almost like maybe you're doubling the EBITDA multiple. Is there like thought process of like a specific number or is it always like we're trying to, you know, double the multiple of what we acquire these practices at? Is there some approach there? Yeah. I think when you do the pro forma, you, you, you have a specific number that you want to buy at. And then certainly a specific number multiple that you want to sell at. However, circumstances dictate both of those, right? So the more popular the specialty that you're buying drives up the multiple where you you actually hit it on the head, Dave. We were trying to stay between three and four X. That being said, you know, you what we're trying to do and what the seller wants, if there's too much of a gap and you can't get the deals closed, you're going to have to move on that. And then when when you go to to sell, it's the same thing. It's what whatever the market will bear. And that market, even though you can find data out there that says, hey, this is what the you know exit multiples are for Derm now, it's really the circumstances of that transaction. And we can even look at today, the multiples on both sides of the deal are different than they were just a year and a half ago. So again, it's a lot of circumstances that go into that. But yes, like everything, you have some some targets established and try to stay within those guardrails. Got it. 
And so with that roll up, you said you were looking at about 20 practices and then you guys acquired 10 of them? Roughly, yeah. Got it. So let's go into some anonymous, you know, anecdotes of like, (laughs) if you can kind of give some examples of like, some from the side of like, here's why we acquired and partnered with 10 of them, and then why we either passed or the deals fell through on the other 10. Yeah, we yes. kind of talked about previously, sure. like different things that can happen or or have happened. What have you seen in terms of surprises, things that like popped up, or things that you know made the the process super smooth and like was you know easy, and some that were challenging or where you had to walk away and there was you know some deal killer. Yeah, so I would say the underlying guidance of managing expectations on both sides and being as transparent as possible is key to having a good post-acquisition relationship. Unfortunately, it's the sellers aren't necessarily, you haven't done a lot of deals. They have different types of advisors. Sometimes it's their CPA, sometimes it's their attorney, and sometimes they don't have that. And they're trying to process everything and make the right choice for them. And then from an acquisition standpoint, we're trying to get a deal done. And sometimes in that dance, perhaps the decision is, well, there's some things that, you know, the best not that we talk about those, you know, that that uh, eh, it might kill the deal. And we don't really, it's not that big. And that happens on both sides. And I find that that's a, that's a recipe for trouble. Before we, the PE firm had purchased a base business and uh, before they put the executive team in, and that base business was under the impression that they basically could keep operating just as they operated before, except they had a big check in their pockets. Well, as you start to build a larger organization and a more professional organization, you can't have uh, practices just operating like it's the Wild West and they just sort of do, do whatever they were doing before, except they're a little more wealthy. And that was what I would consider, that was a mistake. It was prior to any of us coming in there, but to give that perception that, um, that, that it would, that that would be the environment really caused a lot of management issues going forward. And I will say, you know, that we did buy some practices subsequently that had some other unique management issues that we thought we had resolved in the due diligence process. And, um, and they end up not being resolved. So I'll give you another case in point. We bought this practice in Charleston, and it was there was one owner. However, he had for quite some time he'd had his wife in there as sort of the office administrator. We detected during the the um, during the the due diligence that you know that that dynamic caused a lot of tension for the staff in the office. And so over the course of due diligence, we were able to tactfully broker that um, doctor's wife would retire. A practice administrator had been hired and we thought we had the, the issue resolved. Shortly after we closed, the two-week transition turned into a four-week transition, turned into a six-week transition. And we had a great deal of difficulty getting that executed, if you will, where the, the doctor's uh, wife um, would end up leaving. And what we ended up experiencing was a lot of what the staff was experiencing that we detected in the LOI. There were all sorts of issues in how that 
that office was run. Humorously, I guess, you know, this is uh, something that was funny, but um, at one point, the wife called our HR representative on her husband. So we had to... Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Jeez. <laughs> so, um, so again, it's one of those things, though, Dave, when you are, um, you're looking at this and you're sort of seeing the, the danger signs and you're also want to impress upon people is that, that you're now one of many. It doesn't mean that our relationship is any less personal. It's just that we're, you have, you had six providers prior. Now there's 106. So there has to be some acknowledgement that we are now trying to manage a large spread of, of people and facilities. And therefore, you know, establishing how that rhythm should work, both sides have to be accommodating in that regard. But it's perfectly understandable because to see why it's a bit of a hurdle, because if I'm running my own show, then I'm dictating every day how something is going to happen. I'm not asking right. for permission. I'm not, you know, I don't, but now I'm part of this bigger apparatus. I'm still running kind of my office, but you know, it's a new dynamic. And um, and some people, some writers and practice owners are better at it than others. Got it. Now, just to kind of see through a little bit of what you're saying earlier, you were kind of suggesting that maybe you guys didn't have a formal... I'm sure you had a playbook, but maybe you didn't communicate well enough to the potential sellers that there was going to be a lot of change. And maybe... I'm sure you did, and maybe they didn't fully understand it because it's the first time that they're selling and they're going through this transition. But then also, I think certain buyers might try to maybe downplay the potential change that to maybe get the deal over the line instead of saying, like, you know, we're going to have so much change that your team is going to get, you know, frustrated or flustered, or they might quit, or we're changing the billing system, the medical record, the payroll software, we're changing whatever other software or supporting functions and humans don't like change. I've said it a million times on the show, like people, you know, fear change. And and if, especially for a practice, like a primary care physician, they probably have been in business for, you know, years, if not decades and change like that certainly could shock or frustrate a lot of folks. So looking back on it, do you think that you did communicate the potential areas of change well enough or maybe some of these sellers didn't really understand or acknowledge these areas, certain areas that would be changing. Yeah, I think we got better at communicating because as strange as this sounds, very early on, there was a, a sort of a mantra that say required of us, but this was the PE firms, but they thought that this was a strategic advantage was that to be a buyer and communicate that we're a buyer, but we're not going to change very much. And that would be a differentiator. Uh, so that caused some of the early dysfunction, if you will. When I talk, you know, that base practice was probably the most acute management issue we had because it very much was the auspices under which, which they sold. So yeah, it's something that like I said, we got better and better about identifying what would change and what wouldn't or be as transparent as possible. I think, though, that this is an opportunity for us to touch a little bit on the seller side. And when that due diligence is very much something that they need to 
be very good at. And if they're not good at it and they're not sure what to do to get an advisor for that specific activity, because at one point we had five EMRs and the strategic intent was to consolidate, get down to a couple at worst case. It was a reporting nightmare and not something that a lot of people struggle with it in the M&A space. But at no time do I recall a specific conversation with all but one practice about, hey, I'm on Greenway. <laughs> are you going to change? I mean, are we going to do that at some point? And it was just something that didn't come up. It came up in 10% of the conversations. I can think of, of two practices. One, they were still on paper and we converted them to an EMR almost immediately after acquisition, which was okay because the providers were in the early to middle stage of their career, not having already burnt the calories to train on one, they were more amenable to an EMR. And in the other scenario that I can recall is an extremely well-run practice. It was down in Jacksonville, North Carolina. The CEO of that practice was, we ended up not closing that deal, but it was a funding issue. But he, I was really looking forward to partnering with him and um, we can touch on relationships like that a little bit later. But they had purchased their EMR and had a fairly robust IT capability and customized it quite a bit. And so they certainly did not want to come off of that. And so that was a topic of discussion. But you figure two out of two out of many where that is a that's a significant change. That's considered to be a, a disruptor for providers when they have to undergo some sort of a, a retraining on something that it took them a while to get good at in the previous version of whatever they were using. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that it's a two-way street. And, and those are things as well is to see if you can establish a level of transparency and start building a true partnership instead of uh, we put a number out there for the LOI and I'm trying to preserve my number as a seller and as a buyer. I'm trying to see if there's room in that number where I knock it down. I think you're already in tricky territory if that's the disposition of, of the relationship and that doesn't get fixed relatively soon in the, uh, in the due diligence phase. Right. Maybe we'll come back to that really exceptional practice that you guys uh, didn't partner with. Cause it sounds like they probably were asking for too much or something like that, or maybe market rate, but they were asking for a competitive bid. Maybe let's get real quick into the nitty gritty. So you had mentioned in the pre-interview, one practice that like just had $500,000 kind of disappear off the financials, off the books. What do you think, or what did go on there? And, you know, again, these are the anecdotes and the real stories that we want to hear about that, you know, as long as they're anonymous, that these are things that like, to be quite frank, any, any practice owner watching or listening, like, we're going to find it. If we have a good team, forensic accountant or or law firm or whatever and doing perform due diligence, like we're gonna look at the inflows and outflows of the business and we're gonna find some of these, you know, gaps in, in dollars, right? So like what happened there or what do you think happened there? Yeah. Well, there's a uh, one exercise that's done for each function for our due diligence, if you will, there's a, a fairly significant checklist whether that's IT, whether that's HR, certainly the financial side has a very robust, robust checklist. And so one of the activities is just a proof of cash. And as you said, Dave, inflows and outflows. So you've got an operating account, 
you've claimed X amount of revenue. And now we're looking, we're just on a monthly basis, looking at the inflows into your operating account. In this particular practice, we weren't able to locate for, for it, it was cumulative over a period of three months, but we were $500,000 short. And there wasn't a really good explanation as to why that was there. Those types of situations, considering the size of this practice, where $500,000 was, eh, I want to say, about 17% of the total revenue. So it's significant. And immediately we just slowed down. That ended up never closing. It would never close because that didn't get resolved in the time uh, where you know, the, the private equity firm exited the play. But it could have closed had that issue been satisfactorily explained and understood. But it just sort of went into that when we get the answer sort of column and, and feel comfortable, then we'll close. But, uh, but yeah, there's some very, very simple techniques. But, you know, you do find that there after the fact, and this is, it goes back to trying to get better. There is a cat and mouse game. There are things that happen. And, and then, and once you, once you get the scar, uh, provided it's not debilitating you, that gets added into something that you might look for. I'll give you something else that's totally, totally off the, the check in the box. Let me look at my checklist and those sort of things that we learned over time too. And it's reputation. So this one practice that we owned had a particular reputation that we found out afterwards that several other practices in the immediate area that we wanted to buy said, you guys bought practice A. We don't want to work with you. We don't want to work with those guys. We're proximate to them. You know, we're within a few miles of them. We know them and we don't want anything to do with them. And that gave us some pause and said, you know, that's something that hurt our strategic prospects because we really would have loved to scoop up some very, very good and strong practices that were proximate to this one that we bought. And they it, shot but it, in that in that in that situation, you had to pick one or the other, basically, like go after one or the other. You couldn't you we, couldn't partner. We with didn't them. know. We didn't know. We partnered and then started to tap those around it, and we got shut oh, okay. down. Got and it, got and it. what made it more pain? What made it more painful is they did end up selling to other PE firms, so they were in play. They just um, and later, you know, there was more cumulative information. That the the practice that that was purchased um, had a, both both with patients, peers, attorneys, you name the the constituency, if you will, and did not have a a very good uh, good reputation. So, in that realm, when you're getting recommendations from people, referrals, and those sort of things, a little more thought as to it. When I say recommendations and referrals on practices that might be good for us to acquire, there's we developed a deeper level of evaluation in that regard, if we could, obviously without betraying confidences that we were actually, that we were in the acquisitive mode with one or two of these practices. But we did attempt to see what their standing in the community, I guess to put it tactfully, might be and do that in a very uh, uh, subtle, subtle manner. Got it. So going back to that practice that with the 500K that kind of was unaccounted for, you said that was like 17% of the revenue. So about 3 million top line and 17 or 20% of that is around 500K. So 
was the three they were doing about three million and that was what was on like their that's what they were declaring to the irs and that was like on their books or what was the scenario there with what that like how the revenue and like what they were actually declaring as top line revenue what they could say for there was just that discrepancy and even in other parts we found we so we still have to find like where is this money um and just over the course of that and i can't quite recall all of the different locations i just remember the proof of cash was the first one that popped it and then that started the conversation and we never could get a satisfactory resolution that we were comfortable with and it was it got murkier as we went on and so that, that's that's what i recall and then of course that we just sort of tabled it until we could get some resolution never got it never closed Got it. So you said proof of cash, but it, that was like part of your quality of earnings or like what was that was during that process? Yeah. yeah well, you've, it's just your, your monthly inflows to your operating account. And does that match what you've declared as your, is your revenue now? And so if there's a disconnect, there has to be some sort of an explanation. So yeah. it, 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 it sounds like an owner draw, maybe off the books, <laughs> Ill- Ill- illegal <laughs> cash owner draw, but like not a formal owner draw, just, just writing checks to themselves maybe, or who knows, or pocketing yeah. like the, the cash, like the actual copay cash could have been. Yeah. Well, whatever, whatever it was, we never got the explanation. There's a few that you've just thrown out that could have been, but you know, you get to the point it's, you know, it's not for us to understand, it's for us to, for you to help us understand kind of thing. And this, this is pretty basic. And then, you know, when things like that happen and the explanation is not easy, straightforward, where you, you know, several people can look and connect the dots, then you start to worry about other elements that may have given you modest pause, but, uh, but not enough to kill the deal. And then you start to think about those and you say, well, if we're having some issues on this one, is that what you would put as a modest risk? Is that actually a bigger risk that we'll discover somewhere down, down the pipe? So, um, you know, these are things that, that, all get incorporated in, and as you get better and better, you know you start to see these the the, the red flags, if you will. But again, the dynamics of of what you might run into, and then and what you might accommodate, they're constantly shifting. I mean, I remember it got purchased by somebody else because again, we ran into a situation where we had several that were ready to fund, and our investors decided not to fund. And this one, he was the senior partner at this practice, fantastic practice, very engaging guy, uh, was uh, renowned in the area, speaker, those sort of things. But every conversation is very, very nice guy. But every conversation, I mean, he wouldn't go get the newspaper for you without charging you an upcharge. Like everything led back to, well, yeah, I can do that for you, but that's 25 grand. I can do that for you, but I've got to get a little extra here. I've got a little, every single thing was, was, was couched in, in, in a deal. And, um, which didn't stop us at all because really ran a very, a very good organization with tremendous, um, upside. But again, that's something else where you're gauging and saying, are we going to constantly be in some sort of a dance with this this person who carries a lot of influence. He was the top guy, top partner at this practice. People respected him widely, but those are things that you sort of have to gauge 
um, before entering into uh, these relationships. Because like I said, they will, you know, they will bite you afterwards. We had another one where we, it was a limited partnership. They had, I think, about 20 providers, but three partners who sold to us. And one of those partners carried most of the clout. He had started the practice some time ago and carried most of the clout and was was very solid person. Uh, however, had sort of wielded the power, even over his two partners. There were deals behind the scenes where they had, uh, those two partners had purchased more and more of his share, and he was becoming more of a limited partner, but maintained that sort of authoritarian approach. And we ended up bringing on a chief medical officer. And I remember the chief medical officer having a terrifically difficult time working with with that doctor. And it was just because he had 40 years of traction and had done things a certain way, was selling because the practice was was sizable, but not operating anywhere near its potential, uh, even given all of that tenure. And, um, but didn't want to change that much and wanted, wanted to pay, wanted things to stay the same. And that was a good example, however, of how we got better because we went in and negotiated the changes during due diligence that we were going to make and had to be accepted that would fix the performance of this practice before closing on the deal. And even though that even though that doctor, the senior partner, was a little prickly, everyone else understood what it was we were going to do for the betterment of the practice in order to juice their performance. And we did, and we were successful in doing that. Um, I, I would attribute the, the that doctor's disposition just again towards a lot of tenure for running a, 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 his his business for a long time, and. Um, uh, there's a little finesse when with each of these personalities as to how you um, how you develop a decent decent partnership. Yeah, got it. Uh, let's wrap up with this. Uh, you mentioned a couple times tremendous practice or tremendous practices that you looked at. So a couple of those. What would be some of the defining factors? So maybe it's like they have great marketing or great uh, word of mouth in the community. Maybe they are you know compliantly and legally kind of optimizing billing and revenue cycle management and coding team members that maybe are, uh, there's, I don't know, some profit sharing, or there's some, you know, sharing of the upside. When you talk about some of those tremendous practices that you looked at, what are some of the commonalities just for some of the practice owners watching or listening? Maybe they can go into those things, yeah. adopt some of those things, use or, or, or kind of borrow some of those areas. What, what makes some of these practices tremendous in your opinion? Like what are some of those characteristics? Yeah. Uh, there, there are only, a handful from what we looked at that I would categorize in that way. And this is a tricky dribble and you have to have enough scale to have this type of organization. But the very best practices had someone who was dedicated to running the practice as a CEO. Um, and so two that stand out, they were MDs. Had basically no, lo- no, longer, no longer treating, no longer treating, no longer treating. And in those, so, so, and again, that's, a luxury, if you, but but it should be something from an operating model that you aspire to, because the contrast was so was so different. Um, and so, what I would qualify when you knew you were going to have a good partner is to sit with these CEOs 
and you're sharing ideas and they talk about different evolutions or I should say the evolution of the practice and different solutions that they used and why they focused on this and why we, we actually used to do organic RCM. Then we evaluated third parties in this manner. We went to a third party. We didn't like X, Y, and Z. We pulled it back. I mean, there's active solutioning and management separate from the demands of treating patients. And you could see it in how those practices ran, the discipline in the practice, the professionalism across the board in the practice. And all of that is important because, again, the engine, the engine is the people in the practice. And if they are operating comfortably in organized manner and it's not, you know, the Wild West and they're extremely uncomfortable because of the dysfunction, if you will, from just a, a lack of that, that professional management, you know, that has a debilitating effect. So you could see it in the good practices. People were calm. They knew what their role was. And then in the, the others, it was, um, it was, there wasn't that much management, mostly because the people responsible for that management were trying to be full-time physicians as well as, as, as running the business. And, and so, uh, so it, I think it's, it, I'm sorry to cut you off. It's hard to be great at yeah, both. It's hard. It's hard to be full-time treating patients, whether it's your physician, physical therapist, dentist, whatever it might be. It's hard to full-time treat a caseload of 40 or 50, maybe 30, 40 hours of patient care. And then, you know, spinning plates with meetings and, you know, overseeing a whole bunch of other, all the other functions of the practice. And then also kind of growing it and expanding it and making things like efficient and having, you know, standard operating procedures or a playbook or whatever that's actually being revised and improved and updated over time. I mean, it's, it makes sense that's like for those tremendous practices that there is one or two individuals that are maybe previously practice owners or other healthcare providers, but now they're in like an operations role and no longer treating. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll give you, Another hurdle to getting to that structure is typically that person running the practice was a fully functioning provider in the practice before assuming that role. They got enough scale, they got big enough, and 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 it was determined, you know, by the partnership that that this is what we should do. If you do that, you're taking probably one of your best revenue producers off the table, which is hard to do, right? You, that person comes out from the earning fold. And you have to, to figure out how to um, how to replace someone. And it's not as if we say, okay, well, don't you just go get another provider? Well, as we all know, as patients, right? Uh, is it just another provider, or you have a preference? And there are some that are very good, and some that maybe aren't so good. And that that's that's a fact. But and that's why I say that that's that's a luxury if if you're able to do it. But it's also it's evolving. So instead of being transactional and how you do something, someone comes in and tries to sell you a machine or something like that, you have someone who has that mind and the view of what will take the practice forward. They've got the time to absorb ideas and think and converse and look for best practices. And if that's not happening, then you're just going to be in this sort of transactional role uh, mode, uh, kind of like the the hamster on on the hat trail, running as fast as you possibly can, trying to keep all the balls up in the air. But um, but it doesn't. I would say it's not effective. The last thing I'll leave you with is you see this a lot in companies in distress, right? So rather than rather than 
find the right solution, the right person to come in and fix something who you, who has a high probability that they will fix it. That's going to cost you money. So is there something where we can sort of ride the fence? Can we come up with something that makes us feel better? Not as sure of a, uh, of an outcome, but we feel better because we didn't spend more money. And it's sort of like penny wise, pound foolish. And I would say the same thing here in running your practice. You, you, you fall behind. And, um, both of the practices that are top of mind for me, they were, we did not close on them. They had no problem selling them and selling them for the price that they wanted. Got it. Fair enough. And you can't, and you can't get them all, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're getting different offers. You don't know what the other offers are. You know, you might be a little below the the other offers. Who knows? Yeah. I do think though that those practices as well, even though the the one of those, the particular gentleman, I, I, I was jokingly talking about him, everything was a deal with him, but you knew that they would be good partners. And and the other side of the partnership is learning from them who well, about how they built this and evolved it. Yeah, and they're, spe- they're special sauce. They're true partners. And, and that adds to the strength of the overall platform. If you have minds like that with that type of experience contributing, because again, a best practice from practice A, which is extremely well run, should be something that the COO looks at and says, how do we, how do we adopt this across the board? So they're right. bringing that type of value to the overall platform, not just a one more cog in the machine of this roll-up of acquisitions. And that's how it really should be viewed. And um, and again, if you really want to win, it's that more planful, evaluative approach where you're solutioning as opposed to transaction, transaction, transaction. And that's how we got to the promised land. Right. Awesome. Uh, great, Ed. I appreciate your time. Good place to pause. If you guys find this interesting and valuable and helpful, go ahead and subscribe to The Dave Kittle Show on YouTube. You can also check it out on iTunes and Spotify. Ed, thank you so much for your time. This is great. Hey, it's Dave Kittle. Are you a healthcare business owner or physical therapy practice owner who is looking to figure out your succession plan or exit strategy? We might be able to help. And in fact, we may be interested in acquiring your practice. If you're interested, you can reach out to me shoot me an email at dave at conciergepainrelief.com. That's D-A-V-E at C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E, painrelief.com. Or you can call me at any time, 646-781-8884.